Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would turn to 1 Kings chapter 1, we're going to finish the life of David today, and Lord willing, next week we'll open the book of Galatians for eight weeks, so we do have new uh, quarterly studies for you on that, but today, 1 Kings chapter 1 and 2, we're going to end the life of David. We've spent the last three or four months studying the biography of David. Question, how many of you have watched the Olympics, watched the Olympic Games? One of the most storied of all Olympic races is the four by 100 meter race. It involves four runners, each sprinting for 100 meters and then passing the baton to the next runner. Most relay races are won or lost at the baton pass. The last USA runner who ran the anchor leg looked back to pick up the baton. That would be considered a significant no-no in racing. We've come to the end of David's life. He's been the king of Israel for the last 40 years. It's a very storied career. He's now about 69 or 70 years old within the last 12 months of life. David has run a great race, but right now he has literally stopped moving on the racetrack of life. The problem is he's still hanging on to the leadership baton. He has not yet passed it on. And we're going to study today about how David almost drops the leadership baton. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. Now, King David was old, advanced in age, and they covered him with clothes, but he could not keep warm. Verse 5. Now, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. Verse 6. His father had never crossed him at any time, saying, Why have you done so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born after Absalom. He had conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and following Adonijah, they helped him. But, verse 10, or verse 8, Zadok, the priest, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, Nathan, the prophet, Shimei, Rai, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. Here's the principle. An undisciplined life is destined for disaster usually self-inflicted through foolish decisions. An undisciplined life is destined for disaster, usually self-inflicted through foolish decisions. Now, David, is, his character and his physical state of health are being described in the first four or five verses of this chapter. It's clear that David is both impotent and isolated. It says he's cold. He can't keep warm. He's in bed. He's under the covers. He can't keep warm. He very likely has arteriosclerosis. He's got problems with blood flow to the extremities, very likely. In order to keep him warm, his advisors recruit a human hot water bottle in the form of a lovely young woman named Abishag, right? Probably had a beauty contest nationally for this purpose. This was very common practice back in the day before electric warming blankets. Sharing body warmth was a very, very common practice with the elderly for centuries. That's probably where Solomon got the proverb that says, can two, obviously, can one keep a warm alone? Two in a bed, obviously, keep warm. So this is a very common just medical practice. David has not yet appointed his son Solomon to be king in his place because he probably thinks Solomon is too young. Solomon's 18 years old. The real issue is not that Solomon is too young. The real issue is that David is too old. It's clear that the author makes clear the, the decline of David because he's in bed with a beautiful young woman and he can't do anything about it. I mean, the author makes that extremely clear. He's sexually impotent. He seems to be an invalid. It's almost described where he's bedbound and he clearly is oblivious to what's going on in the kingdom. The last time David lost touch with the realities in his kingdom, his third son Absalom killed his oldest son Amnon for raping his daughter Tamar, and then Absalom staged a revolt, started a civil war, 
and tried to kill David. So being asleep at the wheel does not bode well for kings. David's fourth son is Adonijah. And David's fourth son is singing like Simba and the Lion King. Have you ever seen the Lion King? What is Simba and the Lion King? What's he saying? I just can't wait to be king. Well, as Simba finds out, being king involves a bit more than just a scepter, right? Adonijah is going to find that out as well. Now, both Absalom and Adonijah, Absalom's number three, Adonijah's number four, are proud, handsome, charismatic, and they both love the worship of the crowds. Adonijah literally copies Absalom. He hires a chariot and 50 heralds to proclaim his presence. You know, they go before the chariot and say, look who's coming, right? This is Hollywood in the 10th century B.C., I guess. They love the crowds. And interesting, the reason for Adonijah's arrogance is found in the very next verse. It says his father David had never, what does your text say? Never crossed him. Never interfered him. My father used to say he never laid a stick on him. That was crossed me. The truth is, he never disciplined him. He never told him no. He never held him accountable, right? Adonijah, therefore, really is delusional. Adonijah really thinks he has the right stuff to be king. He's completely incompetent, but his father had never disciplined and put a rein on him and never held him accountable and never told him no. So Adonijah really has no clue of the disciplines required for leadership. And we're going to watch it, this whole series of disastrous decisions that Adonijah makes. The application for us is extremely clear. If, enough, if an undisciplined life leads to disaster, what's the solution for that? Discipline. Self-discipline. Interesting. The last of the nine fruits of the Spirit is self control, which is submission to the leadership of the Holy Spirit in our life, because the flesh doesn't discipline itself, but we who have the Spirit of God have the power to discipline ourselves. So Adonijah is looking at the impotence and the isolation of his father, and he decides to build a coalition to support his takeover bid. He persuades Joab, the commander of the army, and Abiathar, the high priest, to follow him in this revolt. Now, Scripture does not tell us why Joab and Abiathar would follow this young man in revolting against his own father. Both of them had been loyal followers to David for decades and decades. As a matter of fact, both of them have been with David in the wilderness when he was in his 20s, which is literally 40 years ago, right? 45 years ago. So they have been long-standing allies of him. It's highly likely at this point in time that Joab is out of favor with David. Joab, remember, killed, his own, killed David's son Absalom, as well as a couple of David's generals. And he probably feels, when David dies, Solomon is going to demote me. Solomon is going to cost me my job as commander, so I might as well go ahead and support one of David's other sons, which is Adonijah. Abiathar is likely just motivated by job security. Remember, at this point in time, we have two high priests. We have Zadok the priest of the line of Phinehas, and we have Abiathar, the priest of the line of Ithamar. And God had cursed the house of Eli and told him because of his sin, his son's sin, that that priestly lineage was going to be delineated and deleted. Abiathar is of that lineage, and we're going to find out how God fulfills that here shortly. But David had been favoring Zadok as a priest for the last several years. I know this sounds very, very human, but it's highly likely that Biathar supports Adonijah just for job security. And you go, you mean people in the Bible did that? Mm -hmm. Just like you and I today. I mean, they were real people with blood, sweat, and tears, and insecurities, and greed, and fear, and all that other stuff. So Adonijah is planning this coalition. He plans this revolt, and he swears everyone to secrecy, which means it's conspiracy. And the author of this book tells us clearly that not everyone who's close to David has abandoned him. He gives us Zadok, Nathan, Benaiah, Shimei, David's personal bodyguards, the Cherethites, the Pelethites. They remain loyal. So there's a core of people that are loyal to David. Not all of them, however. Verse 11. 
Then Nathan, the prophet, spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggath, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? Verse 13. Go at once to King David and say to them, Have you not, my lord, O king, sworn to your maidservant, saying, Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and and he shall sit on my throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? Now, Nathan, every one of us need a Nathan in our life. Nathan is a prophet of God. He's also a very close counselor to David. Nathan is a faithful friend. He's the one who came to him and said, Thus saith the Lord, you have sinned, committed adultery with Bathsheba. You are the man. He brought judgment to him. But he also stayed with him and walked through the picking up the catastrophe pieces of that sin that David did. So Nathan is a very close advisor and an extraordinarily good friend. He speaks for God and is loyal to David as well. So he's got a network. And his network has informed him that Adonijah is planning a conspiracy to revolt against David, but David doesn't know it. David's out of touch. Nathan finds out about it. He goes to Bathsheba and says, there's a conspiracy afoot. We need to do something about it. You need to go to David. So he coaches Bathsheba to go to David and say, you promised me, you swore to me years ago that Solomon would sit on the throne, Adonijah's planning a revolt, and you haven't chosen anyone to replace you. What's going on? She does. And then she says to him in verse 20 something extraordinarily interesting. As for you now, my lord the king, The eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, it will come about as soon as my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon would be considered offenders. Verse 29, the king vowed and said, as the Lord lives who has redeemed my life from all distress. Verse 30, surely as I vowed to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, your son Solomon shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, I will indeed do so this day. Here's the principle. Do what needs to be done. When it needs to be done, whether you like it or not. Do what needs to be done when it needs to be done, whether you like it or not. Bathsheba tells David, if Adonijah is crowned king, as soon as you die, Adonijah will kill Solomon and I. When they say considered offenders, that's exactly what that means. By the way, killing off relatives who are potential rivals to the throne, very common practice. Matter of fact, most people do that today, except they use words instead of swords, but the end result's about the same, right? So it's very common practice that when you took over a throne, any relative who could prevent or, or I guess potentially be a threat to that, you just took care of them at that point. So what Bathsheba tells David is at the very time, it's interesting, the very time Bathsheba's speaking to David, Adonijah is hosting a party on the other side of town, literally. It's a barbecue. It's literally a coronation barbecue of the king's sons. He's invited the king's sons. He's invited the key leaders of Israel. And he's really going to announce at that point in time, I'm the eldest surviving son of King David. He is dying. It was pretty clear. Everybody in Jerusalem knew that. He was bedbound. I'm the logical heir. Anoint me king. And he had that going on at the very time when Bathsheba was talking to David. Most of the people that go to this coronation barbecue know that he's the oldest son, obviously, the king's sons and the key leaders at that point. And they think that he's the logical heir. Many of them probably even thought that David had sanctioned this event because he couldn't get out of bed. He couldn't be there. So Adonijah had done this in secret, but he was deceiving them into believing that David wanted them to do that. So if David does not act this very day, Adonijah is going to be acclaimed king by this group, and by default, he will then have the throne. Now this is a very preventable crisis. God had told David years before that Solomon was to be his heir. 
Matter of fact, God told David that Solomon was born because they named him Jedidiah, blessed of the Lord. God had told David decades, uh, actually not decades, Solomon's only about 18, but years before that Solomon is his designated successor. David knew it. He just didn't do anything about it. Until this procrastination has now created a national crisis of succession. Power vacuums don't last very long because humans are addicted to power. And therefore, we rush in to fill that. Power vacuums are usually filled with violence. So we have a national crisis on our hands. And as you know, David does really well in a crisis. That's when he shines. And things are going along well. He's very indulgent. But you put him in a crisis, he does well. Rob's going to show you a picture of Jerusalem. This is the old city of David. It's a very basic sketch since our resolution is not as high as we would like it. And we're going to illustrate the guy on strings. So David's mission here is to have a very public anointing of Solomon. And he needs a very public anointing right now, today. So the big question is, where are people likely to be in Jerusalem right now? And the truth of it is, this is going to sound very, very pedantic, but they're at the water source. There's only two water sources for Jerusalem. The Gihon Spring was the primary water supply of Jerusalem. And if you have to go get water, you're going to go to the spring. So there's always a crowd where there's water. Think Costco. All right? You go to Costco if you want to meet people, right? You go to Starbucks, whatever it happens to be. It's where people are. So David says, Solomon tells Zadok and the rest of his leaders, you put Solomon on my mule, right? That was obviously the king's own mule. That was an indication of authority. You take him down to the Gihon Springs. There's going to be a crowd gathered. That's where the water source is. Nathan the priest Nathan the prophet and Zadok the priest, you blow the trumpet for attention and you anoint him right there where the crowd can observe it at that point in time. And of course, when they anoint King David, I mean, when they anoint Solomon, the large crowd shouts, long live King Solomon. Now, remember, David is not resigning as king. He's appointing Solomon as co-regent. They're going to rule together. This was very common practice as kings aged. The truth of it is, David was still pulling the strings. He was still the authority. But since he had anointed Solomon as king, when he died, it would be a done deal. He was the succession plan had been completed at that point in time. Now, the timing of this is remarkable. If you read this chapter in detail, you'll understand that Adonijah, less than a half a mile away at the spring of Enrogel, that's the second spring, you can't see it on this, he's got his coronation barbecue. A half a mile away is Gihon Springs, and David has just ordered that Solomon be anointed there. Adonijah is just about ready to declare his bid for the throne, and this party here is going to scream for his kingship, but Solomon gets anointed literally within minutes before, and the crowd erupts with joy and sings, Long live King Solomon, and it says the earth resounded. It was so loud, and Adonijah's party hears it. They're a half mile away. These people are within literally sounding range from each other, but there's a small mountain between Guyon and Erogel, so you can't see each other. They wonder what the sound is going on, why it is. Abiathar's son, Jonathan, comes and he says, David has just crowned Solomon as king. He's ridden his mule. He's anointed him with oil, and he's seated on David's throne. Now, if you're at Adonijah's party, the tri-tip just got cold. <laughs> you understand that you have bet on the wrong horse. Because now you are guilty of treason. And that was a capital offense. And that's a really good weight loss program. So they flee in terror. Adonijah is terrified. He runs to the ark. I mean, he runs to the, the tabernacle. He grabs a hold of the altar. King Solomon shows him mercy, spares Adonijah's life. He says, if he's a worthy man, he's going to be, I'll let him live. If he's not a worthy man, I'm going to put him to death. But it says, go to your house. 
Now, you don't understand this, but that means house arrest. When it says go to your house, that doesn't mean go home. It says go home and stay there. So Solomon puts Adonijah under house arrest. He's going to keep an eye on him. I want to know where you are. We're not told how much longer David lived, but it seems as though it was a relatively short period of time. Let's pick up the narrative in 1 Kings 2. As David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out his promise which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, then you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Here's the principle. God responds to you based on your response to him. When you obey his, he blesses you. When you disobey, he disciplines you. This is a very basic principle. Obedience always brings the blessing of the Lord. Disobedience always brings the discipline of the Lord. That's very, very predictable. So you know how to achieve the blessing of the Lord. It's very simple. Obey what he said. Know what he says and obey what he says. So David's on his deathbed, and he knows it, and he's accepted that. By the way, at the end of your life, we hope you have your priorities figured out. One guy who didn't have his priorities figured out was a convicted murderer named Thomas J. Grasso. His famous last words were all about his last meal. Matter of fact, the last thing he said before he died was, I did not get my SpaghettiOs. I got spaghetti. I want the press to know this. In contrast, David's last words to Solomon are all about Solomon's responsibilities and his relationship with God himself. First things out of David's mouth to Solomon are, be strong and show yourself a man. David's about 69, 70. His son Solomon is about 18. Now, Solomon had not grown up like Daddy David. Unlike David, his shepherd father, Solomon has not killed lions or bears, protected sheep, stayed up late at night in the cold outside of Bethlehem. He's not fought bears. He's not fought giants. He's not enrolled in the army. He's never fought a battle. Solomon's been raised in the comfort of the palace by a very doting elderly father and mother. Solomon's very smart already, but he's very soft. Okay? David knows that Solomon's going to have to grow up into responsible adulthood really, really quickly. The command to be strong reminds us of what? God's command to Joshua. Remember in Joshua 1.8, God told Joshua, be strong and courageous. Matter of fact, he told him that three times. Be strong and courageous, Joshua 1, verses 6 to 9. And leadership clearly requires courage. You are a leader, you are a leader in your family. You are a leader in your workplace. You are a leader in your church, at your school, in your neighborhood. By the way, some people will approve of what you do. Others will oppose what you do. No president ever has a 100% approval rating. By the way, no parent ever has a 100% approval rating either. Correct? I mean, you all know that. You must have the courage of your convictions, which means you and I must believe down to our soul DNA level that we're doing what God wants us to do, regardless of human opinion. That's part of responsible leadership, responsible adulthood, and that's what Solomon is tell, being told by his father. God told all of us in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, Act like men, be strong. So all of us as Christians are called to stay awake spiritually. Don't go to sleep at the wheel. Don't waver in your faith. Stand firm. Grow up into maturity. Stop being children. 
Be courageous, because obviously walking in the opposition of this world requires courage, and be strong to resist temptation. So he says, obviously grow up. Number two, keep the charge of the Lord. The charge is the commands, right? So this is real simple. Everyone in this room is responsible for two things. You have to know what God says, correct? And you have to do what God says because you cannot know, you cannot do what you do not know. You must know first, and you're, we, you and I are accountable to know and then to obey what we know. Walk in his ways. To walk in scripture always means to live. It's a habitual, charactered lifestyle. Walking in God's ways means to organize and prioritize your life with God in the center and not you in the center. That is very easy to say. Did you just see how that rolled off my tongue? The problem is, is we are inherently selfish. That's the nature of sin. Sin is all about self. Sin is at war with God because it puts self on the throne and not the king of kings on the throne. So God is to be the center of gravity around which we organize everything in our life as opposed to us being in the center. Walking in God's paths, not the paths of evil, not in our paths. Now, as you walk this week, as you live this week, there's lots and lots and lots and lots of temptations to walk in paths other than God's path. Being strong and courageous means deciding to be obedient to what God says. David tells Solomon, keep his statutes. Statutes are legislative edicts. They're literally laws passed by a legislature. God is the ultimate lawgiver, right? He's got the right to tell us what to do because he's God. And Jesus told us that every yacht and every tittle of the law will be fulfilled. So when God writes it down in Scripture, he didn't write it down uh, just for our education, he wrote it down for obedience. He says, keep his commandments. The commandments were specified in the Torah, the law of Moses, that was given on Mount Sinai. How many of you know what God wrote in the Torah? You got it in your Old Testament, right? It's the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. How many of you read that from time to time? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. I, I highly, highly recommend you read it. Because God didn't write it down for it to be ignored. Every word in Scripture, every place name, every, and I believe every space in Scripture between the words has purpose. Because the Bible is an integrated message system designed for our eternal good. So God wrote it down in stone so we can read it. And have you noticed that it says, keep his commandments, not keep his suggestions. Have you ever noticed that God never gives us suggestions? God never gives us advice. He gives us commands because he's God. And his commands are always for our good. Let's keep his ordinances. Those are judgments. And lastly, keep his testimonies. A testimony is something that God has witnessed to you about personally. How many of you ever read scripture? And you're reading scripture... And the Holy Spirit takes that verse and just, right, puts that sword right in you. That's called the testimony of the Lord. That is a personal word of application where the Holy Spirit takes his word, takes the truth of Scripture, and as Hebrews said, the word of God is living and active and sharpening the two-edged sword, and you've just been pinned to the wall with it. You know what your response to that is? Obedience. Once you know, now you know, and the Holy Spirit is convicting you that that one is for you. True confessions. I got stuck this morning by Pastor Roger. I mean up against the wall because I am extraordinarily competitive. Marin will verify. She has stuck me to the wall. The Holy Spirit has used my bride to stick me to the wall a number of times. And the Lord said, that's for you, dude. You obey that. You don't always have to be number one. Be at the end of the line. <laughs> We're walking. Marin says, slow down. I said, I am slowing down. I could crawl faster than this. <laughs> I'm telling you, true confessions. Mia is another, our daughter. I need people keeping me in line. When the Holy Spirit speaks to you, you have a decision to make. Am I going to listen to what God says or am I going to go, 
oh, that was, that was truth, but that was for somebody else. No, 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 that was for me. Brad has to obey that this week. I'm being accountable to you, all hundred of you. So some of you will come up to me next week and say, Brad, how's the competitiveness going? I'm going, yeah, it's going great. Surrender. Yep. So God had given David a conditional promise of a perpetual dynasty, but a conditional promise has conditions. It says, if your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, then you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. God says, you'll have a perpetual dynasty, but it's conditioned on the obedience of your family tree. Each child, each son of yours, each grandchild has to make a decision to walk with me. And he says, be careful of your way. Pay attention to where you're going. How many of you have ever seen distracted drivers? How many of you are distracted drivers? Yeah, we're running the same, right? When you are driving and not paying attention, you can get lost, or even worse, you can get into an accident. Aaron and I have a number of friends who literally have gotten plowed by drivers who were distracted. And when you're on a bicycle or a motorcycle or walking, you can't compete with a 6,000-pound armored vehicle, right? So walking with God is not accidental. Walking with God is intentional. Jesus told us the way is narrow that leads to life, right? There's no railroad track that automatically takes you to heaven while you take a nap in the caboose. The route to heaven is a narrow route. It's more like a slippery, steep, narrow, mountainous path that's filled with obstacles and cliffs and dangers. And the only way to navigate that path through life, and you know some of the temptations and the steep cliffs in this life, is to pay attention, close attention, and most importantly, stay really close behind the Good Shepherd who is leading you. He's always in front of you. If we'll follow. Our problem is we want to get out in front of him because we think we know the path. We need to follow the good shepherd, not tell him where to go. So God says navigating this path requires complete commitment and attention. David says, God told David, you tell your sons they have to be careful about how they walk. We've kind of joked in this class before that spiritual attention deficit disorder is dangerous to your spiritual health, right? And we all have spiritual ADD. You know how I know that? <clears throat> Try and pray. See where your mind goes. One of the things I, had, I encourage you to do, pray out loud. Because when your mind wanders, you'll stop making sense. And you'll have some feedback to go, oh, yeah, I'm bringing this someplace else. So a really good thing about praying out loud. right? It kind of keeps, keeps, keeps you focused at that point in time. David is speaking from personal experience because whenever he left God's path, he always ran into trouble. But he always came back. That's one of the great character traits of David's life. It's not that he was perfect. He had made some disastrous decisions. Two weeks ago, we talked about numbering the nation of Israel and the pride that, re that generated that. We've talked about his adultery with Bathsheba and some things like that. But David laid down a very good example for his family of repentance. When he did screw up, he always came back to the Lord. He always came back and asked for forgiveness. Right? Psalm 51 is probably a good example of that. So we set a good example. And unfortunately, Solomon and Solomon's children didn't follow that example. Solomon drifted away from God over time. It says that he, he married many foreign women. That's not necessarily not necessarily Jewish, although many of them were not. But they were foreign in the sense that they didn't follow God. And they turned his heart from God and he drifted away from the Lord. He didn't follow God with his whole heart. He loved his many wives more than he loved God. And his heart turned away from loving the Lord with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, and all his strength. And he became the wisest fool the world has ever seen. It's possible to be very, very bright and to be absolutely spiritually stupid. It's absolutely possible. And you know what's scary? Is every single one of us are susceptible to that. Because every day, you are in charge of your heart. Lord, do you have my heart? Or am I drifting? That's every day. Every single day. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. So David admonishes Solomon to trust and obey God. He also had some very practical political advice. 
David has left some unfinished business and Solomon's going to have to clean it up. There's a lot of landmines in the kingdom and Solomon's going to have to fix them or they can destroy his kingdom. Go to verse 5. David says, Now you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me. What he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and to Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. He also shed the blood of war in peace. And he put the blood of war on his belt, about his waist, and on his sandals on his feet. Verse 6. Fascinating verse. So act according to your wisdom and do not let his gray hair go down to Sheol in peace. Here's the principle. Unfinished business is like an infected wound. It festers until you face it and fix it. Unfinished business is like an infected wound. It festers until you face it and fix it. Joab has been commander of the Israelite army for decades and decades and decades. He's David's nephew. Joab is a very calloused warrior. Killing people doesn't seem to bother him. On a couple of occasions, he seems to give David pretty godly advice, but most of the time, Joab seems pretty indifferent to God. He's infamous for three unprovoked murders. He killed David's son, Absalom. He killed two of David's commanding officers in time of peace, Abner and Amasa. All three were against David's command, and all three were against God's law. In a time of peace, Joab tricked both Abner and Amasa into dropping their guard, and he stabbed them to death out of revenge and jealousy in a time of peace. When David's son Absalom had led the revolt and began a civil war, David had expressly commanded all the generals, do not kill Absalom. Show him gentleness. He was obviously hoping he would repent and turn. And you know the story when Absalom got hung up in an oak tree because of his long hair, Joab murdered him, hanging between heaven and earth in direct disobedience to David's command. All three of these murders were premeditated. Uh, none were justified. All violated the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And David had done nothing. He did not execute him for his crimes. It seems likely that politically he feared that the following Joab had in the army was so strong that if he'd executed Joab, he could have had a revolt in the army. We're not sure, it doesn't say, but he did not deal with it. And God had told Israel, innocent blood will pollute the land. Boy, we could spend a lot of time on abortion here, but I'm not going to do that. But justice cries out to God for retribution. And Joab had just committed treason in supporting Adonijah instead of Solomon as the next king, which was contrary to God's command and David's will. So David commands Solomon, when I die... You take care of him, which means execute him. He also says, you show kindness to Barzillai. Remember, Barzillai was the 80-year-old young man who had provided for David when he was fleeing from Absalom. It's interesting that David didn't forget, and that should give us hope, because many of you are serving in a ministry. And that ministry doesn't have to be a church. It doesn't have to have the name of the church on it. Many of you are serving by taking care of elderly family members. Everything you do counts. The ministry you have to your grandchildren counts. The ministry you have for family members counts. The ministry you have to your neighbors counts. I don't care if anybody knows about it. Jesus knows. Jesus values your service and he will reward it. Don't get hung up on whether somebody else knows it, whether you have a title. That's completely irrelevant. Barzillai served David in his time of need, and David remembered and says, Solomon, you take care of that family, because they took care of me decades ago. That should give us hope. Jesus remembers your service. So then David warns Solomon about the treachery of Shimei, the Benjamite, Remember this guy, he is the guy who cursed David, threw rocks at him when he was fleeing from Absalom. Of course, cursing the king was a capital crime. And his, David's nephew, Abishai, said, let me go cut his head off right now. David stopped that. And after the, David was restored, coming back to Jerusalem, Shimei falls on his face. He says, I've sinned, I've sinned, forgive my sins, please. And David swears that he won't kill him. So David has to keep his word but David seems now to believe that Shimei really is a rebel at heart. And in fact, he could lead a revolt against Solomon. So he says, you watch this guy. You watch this guy. He's going to create trouble for you. You use your wisdom to bring him to justice. 
the application for us is really simple. How many of you have unfinished business in your life? Deal with it. Deal with it. It's not going to get better by itself. Have you ever noticed that neglecting cancer diagnoses generally don't improve with age? Sin does not get better with time. It grows and it gets more toxic and more lethal. If God is convicting you about unfinished business. So the truth of it is, we live in a sinful world, there's unfinished business. Ask God to show you what it is. Ask him what you should do about it. And then do it. Amen? David dies, Solomon's king. Just because you're chosen by God and affirmed by the people doesn't mean everyone's going to submit to your authority. So Solomon spares Adonijah's life, confines him to house arrest to keep an eye on him. There's an old proverb that says, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. Probably a pretty good idea. It's a good thing Solomon did so because this is his half-brother. And Adonijah's had a taste of kingly power and he's going to make a backdoor run to the throne. Adonijah, fourth son of David, who's now dead, goes to Bathsheba, who's now the queen mother, because Solomon's just recently anointed. And he asks her to intercede with Solomon to give him Abishag. Abishag was the nurse concubine of David. Now this language tells you how deluded Adonijah is. Go to verse 15. Underline this. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 15. Adonijah says to Bathsheba, You know that the kingdom was mine and that all Israel expected me to be king. However, the kingdom has turned around and become my brother's for it was from the Lord. Now, I am making one request of you. Do not refuse me. And she says, speak. She doesn't make promises before she finds out what she's being held to. She says, speak, wise woman. Then he said, please speak to Solomon the king, for he will not refuse you that he may give me Abishag the Shunammite as a wife. Here's the principle. Do not pursue what God has prohibited. When God says no, it's for your own good. How many of you ever run through God's stop signs before? It does not work well, right? Adonijah is about 33 years old. He's King David's oldest surviving sons because the first two have been murdered. And he thought he should have had the kingdom. You know, in the tradition in that era that the eldest son would succeed their fathers to the throne, but it was simply not true that all Israel expected they'd be king. God had already told David through Nathan, Solomon's going to be king. David had told the nation that Solomon was going to be successor when he had reviewed the plans for the temple, etc. Adonijah knew himself that Solomon was supposed to be king. That's why his conspiracy was secret, right? He says, Solomon has the kingdom because of God's will, but now I'm going to make a request of Solomon's mother, and he's used to getting his way. He says, do not refuse me. Sounds like somebody who's never been told no. So Abishag is King David's nurse before King's death, before David's death. They were not sexually intimate, but she was considered part of his harem. And in that era, to make a claim for the harem was to make a claim for the throne. If you took over the harem, you took over the kingship. And to be the eldest son of a deceased king would make your claim even stronger. So Adonijah is deluded enough to acknowledge that Solomon is God's choice as king, but in the next breath, he's plotting how to take it away from him. Beyond stupid to think that you can thwart God's will. You know why? He'll outlive you. <laughs> Now Solomon's 18 years old, he's been given the gift of wisdom by God, and he sees through Adonijah's back door attempted to capture the throne. He understands that even though he's granted Adonijah clemency, Adonijah's not given up his desire to plot to be king, because once Adonijah marries Abishag, he now has a claim to the throne because he's, a, he's inherited part of the harem. 
He also understands that Joab and Abiathar are part of this conspiracy, so he orders that Adonijah be executed that very day. Can you imagine being Adonijah? You're handsome. You're steadily. You're 33. You've asked for this beautiful woman, and there's a knock on the door, and you think it's Abishai. And you open the door, and it's Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the captain of the guard who runs you through with a sword. Like that. Rebellion against God cost him his life. The application for us is that God has a specific plan for each one of us. God has specific work for you to do. Ephesians 1 tells us from the beginning, from before the foundations of the world, God had you in mind, a specific DNA, a specific set of abilities, a specific set of spiritual gifts, and a specific set of work for you to do on however many years you have on planet Earth. And the only way you can know what God's plan for you is, is to ask. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask. So God's plan for Adonijah was not rebellion. God's plan for Adonijah, he was born into David's family. He was Solomon's elder brother. Can you imagine what kind of an ally and asset he could have been for Solomon? He could have been a huge source of support for King Solomon if he hadn't got arrogant and prideful and stepped out of God's plan for his life and decided to do things his way. And as a result, he was executed about 33-34. What a waste. See, you and I spend a lot of time pursuing what we want in this life. The truth of it is, God has a plan already from time immemorial for you. A specific plan. It's a good plan. As a matter of fact, His plan for you and I is better than our plan. By far better. No matter how good your plans are, His plans are eternal. So, one of our primary jobs is to ask, Lord, what's your plan for today? Don't worry about tomorrow, next month, next year. God, what's your plan for today? When you make your laundry list, your priority list, your to-do list, we've talked about this before, leave the first three or four spots blank. That's where the Holy Spirit's going to fill in your day with divine appointments, right? Has God ever interrupted your schedule? Ah, he does all the time. The issue is when he does, are we willing to say, yes, Lord, you're going to turn left here? I'm willing to turn left. I'm willing to alter my plan for your plan. Adonijah wasn't willing to do that. God said, it's clearly not my plan for you to be king. It's clearly my plan for Solomon to be king. Adonijah wasn't willing to live with that. I want my way. Fine. Leave early. Right? 33. Adonijah is brought to justice. Solomon dismisses Abiathar, the high priest. Obviously, he had supported Adonijah's rebellion. But Abiathar, the priest, had been loyal to David for decades, so Solomon shows him mercy. Solomon then has Joab executed, and ultimately has Shimei executed as well. It's interesting. When you read these first two chapters, this leadership transition, this great baton pass of political and spiritual leadership from David to Solomon... What you see is the drama of political foolishness because you have these people who are going to oppose God's plan for Solomon to be king and they want to substitute their plan. And what happens to all plans that oppose the will of God? They fail. Every single person with the exception of Abiathar who opposed God's plan didn't survive. You know, we live in a world that seems to lurch from crisis to crisis, right? You can go back and look at newspaper headlines of 60, 70, 50, 40, 100 years ago, and there's always a new crisis on the front page. And you look at that and you say, how in the world are we going to survive today's crisis? It's real simple. We're not in charge. Washington's not in charge. Sacramento's not in charge. The mayor's not in charge. God is on his throne and Solomon's anointed king because God decreed that was the plan. And everyone who opposes that is removed. Nothing has changed. 
Do not let your hearts be troubled, which means stop worrying about blood pressure, about who's going to get elected to what post. I'll tell you who's going to get elected to what post. Who God says is going to get elected to what post. Our faith should not, boy, I'm on a hobby, boy, watch out. This is so important because we go, if only so-and-so would get into power, then blah, blah, blah. God's already in control. He's already king. When we start putting our trust in humanity, we say, God, you can't handle it. We got to have an earthly king. We got to have an earthly Supreme Court justice. We got to have a godly president. You have almighty God on the throne. Stop trying to anoint somebody else. He is Lord. You want change in the political sphere? I got it. Vote. But before you vote, pray. Pray, 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 pray. The Holy Spirit can move in Washington when you and I can't move there. So cry out to Almighty God to accomplish His purposes and then clean up your own backyard. You know, we're so worried about what's going to go on in Washington. The Lord says, Brad, you obey me. Stop being competitive. Okay, I got my own backyard to clean up. That's what Brad's supposed to do. Whatever God tells you to do this week, you submit to and work on. Okay, we're out of time. Let me give you... We really are. I'm getting wound up here. Let me, let me give you, before Tom comes and does our prayer and praises, let me give you the five principles. Every one of these are enormously applicable. Number one, an undisciplined life is destined for disaster. Usually self-inflicted through foolish decisions, and you all know people who are making foolish decisions. Don't you be one of them. Number two, do what needs to be done when it needs to be done, whether you like it or not, which means this week you may have some things you need to take care of that you've been neglecting. Number three, God responds to you based on your response to him. You have as much intimacy with the Father as you want right now. When we obey, we get blessing and intimacy. When we disobey, we get discipline. Number four, unfinished business is like an infected wound. It festers until you face, face it and fix this. And spiritual infection weakens us, so we need to let the Holy Spirit clean that out. And lastly, do not pursue what God has prohibited. When God says no, it's for your own good. He knows what we need. He knows what we need. Okay. Thank you all for listening uh, to what the Holy Spirit has to say this week. Uh, get on the podcast, and I will continue to pray this week that we will be listening to what the Holy Spirit says. Love you now that you know. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.